0: everyone. This is Elena Schefter uh, from EPAM. I am the Head of Strategy and Marketing for uh, a rather large global organization. And today, I'm here talking with Alan Bondi, who's the VP and Research Director at Forrester, uh, really covering a number of digital transformation topics. Hey, everybody. And so we thought that in this episode, we could broach a topic that has gotten a lot of airplay uh, over the last few years in particular with everyone talking about ecosystems
1: and what they mean and
0: really what they are. Um, And obviously EPAM has been doing quite a bit of thinking about the nature of what we believe is the next generation of enterprises um, that we're labeling adaptive enterprises. And uh, we are thinking a lot about how this idea of ecosystems fits into that construct of an adaptive enterprise. And so, Alan, I know this is an area near and dear to your heart. I know you've been thinking a lot about this and maybe talk a little bit, why, a little bit about why you think this is uh, an important conversation for
1: today. Yeah, you bet. Um, and you're right. I've been thinking about this for probably over 20 years back to you know my time at McKinsey when we were looking at sort of the then state of e-business and e-commerce and online selling, which, you know, at one point people thought this wasn't going to happen, right? That people would get freaked out about security or privacy. And um, even over the last 10 years, mostly when I've been in the SaaS space, you can't launch a SaaS company without attaching to larger ecosystems like Salesforce or SAP. And in many cases, those SaaS companies are creating their own marketplaces and ecosystems. So this is a topic that's been percolating for the better part of the last couple of decades. So it's pretty cool to sort of gather up what we've learned, but also see what's changing, right? So that's, that'll be fun to dig into.
0: Great. Well, I know you guys are doing quite a bit of thinking and research on the topic, but just for our listeners uh, in this podcast is hopefully one of several. What is an ecosystem? How do you define it?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, an ecosystem broadly is the, the network that you bring to bear for your clients, for your employees. It's those business relationships. Some of those are strong links. Sort of in the network right those direct relationships who you're going to market with some of those are weaker links when we talk about you know social networks the the friend of the friend of the friend but really we think of ecosystems as being both that network effect and you can't talk about being a consumer company or a business to business company without having a network you know your suppliers or your distributors or your retailers but also um, it's the way that people are going to market and it's also the way that we can help our clients both the Forrester clients and the epam clients sort of navigate who brings the best partners to solve your problem and then it's the technology too And we'll dig into this i know in, in a little bit it's not just those relationships but also can we codify those relationships can we create platforms uh, with technology that allows for example a host of the marketplace to bring together buyers and sellers and then leverage that network effect for the benefit of all parties. And that's sort of the ultimate, right, is to create a multi-sided platform that brings together lots of stakeholders and everybody gets something out of it or not, as we'll talk about, making sure that you make an ecosystem be beneficial to all the participants and make sure that there's not too much of a bias towards one party or the other.
0: Do you think there's necessary components? I mean, do you have to have X number of elements in order for it to be an ecosystem?
1: So... Um, well, at least you have to have two parties, right? There has to be, um, you know, to create a community, you need at least a couple members. As we'll get into, right, the power of platforms does scale up. The more that you bring in more, for example, buyers and sellers and the economics kick in, you know, look at Uber or you look at uh, iTunes, the more participants you have in a proper uh, platform business, the incremental cost of bringing in new customers and the value Uh, tends to go up. So, mostly bigger is better, but not always. So, I know that, um, you know, EPAM thinks a lot about this. I I have a question for you. I'm, I'm curious how you are thinking about the power of ecosystems, you know, as a digital services firm, because clearly some of the classic ecosystems surround services companies, agencies, consultancies. How is EPAM thinking about it, both for your own business, but also how you're leveraging that know-how on behalf of your clients?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, maybe start with clients, because that, after all, is, is really our, our focus primarily. Um, well, we're coming at it sort of in in, in the most, um, I would say, technology-centric way historically, although that's starting to change with us, with us introducing some new capabilities around consulting. Um, and we're starting really, in understanding the data. And when you kind of get into the data conversation, it becomes readily obvious that many of the marketplaces outside of sort of the large cloud marketplaces are verticalized. And so we see tons of investment in traditional kind of manufacturing industries, in oil and gas, um, really interesting things going on in life sciences. Um, And a lot of things that are really um, Pushing traditional businesses, however you define that, to think about their strategy for their next generation products, and whether those are digital products or physical products or some type of merge, and how to expose those products through their data to a, a variety of either their own proprietary marketplace ideas or through more industry consortia type marketplaces.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm grinning because. Um... You know, we're in the process of building a database of uh, primarily B2B to start, but uh, industry marketplaces. And the more we look, the more we find, both in terms of, as you said, the sort of verticalization, sub-verticalization, both on the sort of natural areas where you look like indirect sort of MRO type products, you know, for aerospace, airplane parts, uh, for uh, services for running your business, but also there's a lot of action happening on the direct procurement, like construction materials, chemicals. And my hunch is that there's about um, you know, several hundred. We already have a database of 200. There's probably double that in terms of viable industry marketplaces, ones that have uh, a scale of sellers and buyers that have raised some funding. And that's an area we're absolutely going to focus on. One other thing though, I, I'd love to... Um, sort of ask, sort of as we wrap up this part of the conversation is, as companies are setting these up, what do you think people are missing? Because um, in theory, you already have these relationships, you bring those relationships into a digital setting. As you mentioned, the data is already flowing between partners. If you're a manufacturer, you have your suppliers, you have your distributors and retailers. Is it just simply moving that online? Or is there something else that people are missing?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Actually, there's a couple of sort of points of reflection that are, that are difficult for people to take on. Number one is this idea of just turning on the data. It doesn't actually happen quite that readily, um, both from a business perspective, mm-hmm. because the relationships are not digital relationships, but also from a technology perspective, you, you have to have thought at least a little bit about the, the coverage of digitization within your portfolio of products or services. And
1: a lot of manufacturers are just not good at that.
0: They're not good at that and they're not thinking about it in the way that I would consider to be programmatic, right? It's very sort of incidental and it's done Mm in the line of business. And that's that's difficult because you're you're actually trying to build an ontology in some ways. Um, The second piece that's difficult is that when people think of marketplaces, especially digital platform enabled ones, they're having to come up with new digital services. And I don't want to call it a lack of imagination because I don't think that's true.
1: No, you can all have that.
0: <laughs> but I think that, um, you know, it takes a little bit of a different paradigm to look at digital services as products rather than looking at product as products as um, products. And so we're seeing some delay in, in people's ability to really articulate a new types of business model that are sort of native to the marketplace idea. Versus just an interpretation of an existing business model, and you can see that again, vertical by vertical. If you went with, you know, manufacturing, you would have one example. If you went with construction, you would have a totally different example. Um, and so, I think the complexity is in the thought model, in the mental model, in as much as it is in the technical. No, that's a,
1: that's a great point.
0: So, you know, we've been talking a little bit about the plumbing and the mechanics of of what a marketplace is and what an ecosystem is. Um, but I know that that you and I both kind of share some similar ideas about the economics of ecosystems. So can you share sort of your thinking out loud?
1: Yeah. And and, and this is a great segue for um an idea that you just mentioned, right, is this is a new business model in many cases, unless you're already in this business, right? Unless you're a digital platform, this is a new business. And when we talk about ecosystems or we talk about marketplaces, we're really talking about scaling up a digital platform, becoming a digital platform business. And um, that's not easy, right? That this, this takes a village, but also it takes discipline and technology and processes and incentives. And... Um, I will encourage the listeners to look back at some of the work, especially that Ted Shadler and Nigel Fedek have done at Forrester in terms of becoming a digital platform business. And you realize when you examine everything we were talking about through that lens, that you realize two things. One is that there is this progression. You have to sort of attract the buyers and sellers. And if it's a technology marketplace, you have to get people writing to the same APIs and get them participating digitally. And then over time, you sort of earn the right to be a proper marketplace. But there's lots of digital platform businesses that won't quite evolve to marketplace status. And if you're just thinking about, hey, we want to launch a marketplace and you don't look at what it takes to be a platform business, you're going to have a hard time. And I think that's, those are sort of the fundamentals when we talk about wiring up an ecosystem or developing a marketplace, that you have to follow the rules of building a digital platform business. And if you don't, it's sort of at your peril because you may invest a lot and not attract the volume of buyers and sellers. And then you're just sort of, you know, doing an e-store that nobody knows about. And that's, nobody wants that.
0: I'm assuming you guys are getting a lot of questions about this, but are you in fact, and if you are from whom and sort of how would you categorize them?
1: Yeah. So this, this is a great question because I started, um, sort of digging into, you know, at Forrester, right. Um, I saw this early on when I was starting to take inquiries from some of our, uh, e-commerce customers and our manufacturing customers. And they were, in many cases, re-examining how they go to market Right as a manufacturer, which started leading them to investigate new channel partners, for example, moving into a market like China where they didn't have a dealer network. And they started exploring people like Alibaba and WeChat. And I started hearing that over and over again. And we started digging in. It's like, well, let's see what's going on with these platforms. And you realize this, the massive scale, especially in some of those markets, that became a primary channel for some of you know manufacturer in North Dakota that wanted to sell their equipment through into China. They weren't going to build that network, but that network already existed. And I think that, that's where we started seeing the initial interest. And then that led us down the path to evaluate well, what other options are there. And back to the vertical discussion. There's dozens and hundreds of these options. And then it's a question of, as a seller, do you sort of build or buy or borrow, you know, from a third party marketplace or your own? Do you go horizontal, like through Amazon business, do you go very niche? And it becomes kind of a channel discussion, which it should be.
0: Right. No, I think we should come back to this question, you know, from our our point of view, um, it's, it's really a significant business strategy conversation. I mean, is it a shortcut? Is it a new channel? Are you opening a new market? Are you redefining the relationship between your existing network of distributors or dealers or whatever business you happen to be in? And,
1: and how will you know when you're being successful yes. and even fair? And I know it's something we've talked about offline, which is, you know, what makes a healthy ecosystem? And also, um, you know, how do you know that you're doing right by your partners? I mean, is it just, you know, the growth of the ecosystem or the marketplace and you're seeing the number of sellers and buyers go up and the gross merchandise value go up and that's all good? Or do you have to be more mindful of making sure that you're including the right partners and you're not excluding others? I'd be curious what your spin is on how to create a healthy, you know, ecosystem slash marketplace that's not just um, focusing on commercial outcomes versus greater
0: outcomes. Yeah, well, from, you know, from ePAM's perspective, again, you know, I think you're you're looking at different types of marketplaces with different purposes in mind. Um, if you're just trying to connect your trading partners, I think sort of the rules of the game are relatively straightforward.
1: Yeah, it's transactional, right? Right. Uh,
0: but if you're trying to create these new digital platform businesses, you know, the entire business is built around a digital platform, then I think you want to be not just... Proper, but you want to be a good corporate citizen in that regard. I mean, and just my personal opinion is that there's a difference between value creation and value extraction. And we can see that drama playing out in the world today with some of the large platforms that we can all name, I'm sure. So I think as, as companies start to move into that space more aggressively, and it isn't just sort of stuff that's happening out, in the ether of I mean, is startups? that more
1: than just good corporate social responsibility, or is yeah. it wiring that into the platform as well?
0: Well, I mean, as you and I have discussed sort of offline, you know, I think my view on it is that there's more than one way to set up this type of a business. Just because we have examples today from, you know, Facebook and from Amazon and, and some of the big and, buyers, Uber and-, and Uber and all these other guys, just because that's sort of the, the prevailing model with its exponential growth curve. That doesn't necessarily mean that's the only pattern. And I think, you know, it's not a corporate social responsibility effort. I think it's an opportunity for people for whom the context of their engagement in the world, which is ultimately kind of the expression of the ecosystem, matters more than just extracting the maximum number of value for your shareholders.
1: So that reminds me of, and I got to bring this up because we've both spent time around the open source uh, area, used to run product marketing for an open source company. It was both sort of the best of times and the worst of times, right? It was wonderful to have that community to drive innovation, to bounce ideas. Um, There's a lot of wonderful open source projects from, you know, Eclipse and Apache and people like that. Intuitively, this should be sort of a, a rich area for marketplaces and thinking about this sort of greater good versus commercializing. What's your spin on that? Because open source is, is, again, both this wonderful source of innovation, but also frustration for marketers who've tried to figure out how to commercialize it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really challenging. I mean, commercializing even basic marketplace ideas outside of open source even is a tough It's very difficult, you know, going back to understanding what is a digital product, what is a digital service.
1: It requires different selling and marketing motions than a lot of, especially B2B companies, aren't equipped to act like. And we talk about some in our research that, you know, business sellers have to think like CPG brands because of packaging and promotion and owning the digital shelf and the role of data and and all of this. And most B2B marketers are bad at doing that.
0: Right. Yeah. And, so back to, back to kind of the open source discussion, you know, we're, we're starting to um, take the messaging out to market. Um, but to answer your question, I think the commercialization question isn't the right question. The question is how do you create value out of open source communities? And for us, it comes back to data, right? So, so sort of I'm a big believer in the notion that information wants to be free, not just free commercially, but free as an open and readily accessible so that you get contributions from multiple places to make things better, especially if you're, again, in verticals working on very difficult problems, genomics, you know, clinical trials, whatever. Um, From our standpoint, we want to engage the broader community. And it makes it easy because we think we have sort of brand permission to do it as an engineering company. Um, So it's kind of easy to step into open source in software world. It's more difficult in some of the other worlds, you know, as you get into vertical ideas. Um, But we're we're trying very hard. And one of the things we think is that it's a dual conversation. One, it's a conversation to incentivize people to become contributors as a habit, which, you know, that's a tough And
1: engineers and and coders tend to naturally want to do that,
0: which is good. They do. And scientists do as well. Yes. But what about the rest of the world, which is 98% of the rest of the world? Um, and, and we think there's a just value for humanity in open up thinking to people and creating these platforms and, and online communities where people can actually make each other's ideas better.
1: Well, it's about value exchange, right, as, yeah. as, as we both agree, but also it's got to be about transparency because look at something like Facebook where, you know, they built their community because of the value that those, I mean, users wouldn't be on Facebook if they weren't seeing value of connecting with their high school friends and, you know, posting in their community. But I'd say we both agree that it wasn't quite apparent to most users what that value exchange was, right? That Facebook was was selling that data and users were not necessarily aware of that. And and one of my startups was an early dev garage partner of Facebook developing some of those ad units that leveraged that data. It worked amazingly well, but also once the users understood how their posts or their data was being used, they hated it. So that's a good example of commercially, it was really effective, but in terms of transparency and the value of the community, it, it was it was kind of a nightmare because people hated that Facebook was doing that with their data.
0: Well, I think, you know, um, I think I have to be a little bit careful here because some of these guys are clients of ours, but it, it's beyond that, right? So this idea of transparency and, and the use of data and the permission economy, which is where I think marketplaces was, are going to push us very, very quickly here, Um, the idea of monetization, not just commercialization of a proposition like open source software, for example, because I think we're we're there already. People are increasingly understanding the value of a component build out of open source parts, even at the enterprise level.
1: Yeah, what software companies are not using open source somewhere under the covers, whether they promote it or not? And that's something that I learned the hard way is, the value of open source is in that under the coverness, not necessarily waving the flag that hey, we use open source.
0: Exactly that, and then how do we repackage open source componentry? How do we build services around it? What what is it that we want to add value in over the top as a layer of open source strategy? But back to this, you know, idea of monetization. You know, I think it's going to become. I, I don't want to use the word insidious, but I can't come up with a better word. Um, I think it's going to be ever- pervasive. Pervasive. Pervasive is a better word. You're right. Um, But I think the question is going to become something that stays with us all the time because it isn't so much the sale of the data, it's the use of the data as our platforms become more intelligent through artificial intelligence, through machine learning, where you get to a point where people like Facebook are going to be able to drive your actions. They don't have to sell your data. So the questions are, you know, after, after you're an organization who's thinking about standing up a marketplace, those ethical the thoughts and discussions and, and decisions are going to have to be baked into the strategy of the marketplace from the very beginning, because I'm not sure the world is ready for five more Facebooks.
1: I think we both agree on that.
0: <laughs> so I know you guys have been thinking a lot about new rules for these ecosystems, and obviously that's part of the research. Um, what, what are your thoughts sort of for codifying these new digital rules?
1: So it's interesting because if you go back in um, sort of some of the early work that Forrester has done around the, the new rules of digital business, one of those rules is in fact, leveraging ecosystems and along with driving innovation, looking at customer experience, looking at customer operations. So I think that is another way to sort of look at best principles, which is what's benefiting the end customer How can you improve your operational ability to, again, benefit the business and the customer? How can you drive innovation at that intersection? I mean, a lot of the good stuff is really at that intersection of experience and operations, whether you're talking about back office versus front office. And then, um, you know, how do you take the ecosystem and amplify that goodness or not goodness, depending on how you're creating your your rules?
0: And so what's next for you guys? I mean, what are you thinking? I'm I'm a, you know, a multinational traditional enterprise, and I'm interested in dipping my toe in the water of this next generation ecosystem enabled marketplace. What's my game plan?
1: So I think there's two branches, right? One is who are the helpers, the service providers, the agencies? What's the future of those services providers? That's something that Ted Shadler's really focused on right now. And that's very much related to the relationships between those service providers, the hyperscalers, the app providers, the open source communities, and how they can create maybe these bespoke, your know, industry cloud type solutions that we're talking about. The other dimension is the technology that's used to create these marketplaces and you know we have multiple branches of that marketplace research we're looking at the marketplace builder tools Mm -hmm. we're looking at the role of the traditional e-commerce platforms as they evolve to support this sort of modality we're looking at industry marketplaces as we've talked about um, in terms of where are the buying patterns changing enough so people will adopt digital selling and buying. In some cases, they're not, right? There's just some products that either aren't suited to sell online or they can't be configured online or the buyers aren't used to buying online and they're not interested in doing it. Or there's value add that happens in a dealership or in a distributor that just can't be emulated online. So there's it's, there's no question that there's a subset of products and services that are natural for marketplace selling and others that aren't. Now, it doesn't mean that the the not category won't have new digital products that they're creating that can go online or services that can go online, but that's really the focus of our research is carving out and providing taxonomies and decision tools for people to want as a seller, you know, of your assortment, your products that you have, which products are suited for selling online and then in a marketplace. And then when you start to experiment, and that's going to be the next couple of years, a lot of experimenting, right? We're seeing this in every industry. Hey, we're going to take this assortment and we're going to try it out on Amazon Business, or we're going to launch a marketplace ourselves for a certain product line or a certain geography. And I think that's going to feed the insights, the data that you've talked about. And then there'll be this slow move from, you know, right now, overall B2B spending You know, the percentage of that that's e-commerce is roughly 15%. So there's a huge upside. And then the percentage of e-commerce that is being transacted through a marketplace, I'm thinking that's going to approach about a third over the next couple of years. So we're still talking about the majority of this is not happening on a marketplace. And where it will break out is a huge opportunity, both for buyers, sellers, and the technology helpers.
0: Yeah, I mean, we certainly see the opportunity in the same way that you do. I mean, we mentioned early on in our conversation that the vast majority of content is not digital content. And if you want to expose a new channel, that channel being predominantly a digital channel, that's heavily... Or,
1: or it is again. digital, but it's trapped in a PIM system or it's trapped in a, in a CMS system that just is not set up to syndicate at scale.
0: Or even port, right? Forget syndication for a minute. You don't have really readily portable taxonomies of content, whether it's product information or experience content or navigation content or editorial content. I mean, I could go on.
1: Oh, 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 and by the way, if you're going to own a marketplace, then you're basically in the business of driving traffic and curating products and reviewing products and all that back to this is not trivial i'd be curious sort of how you guys are doing this because you have your solutions hub you know how are you thinking about driving traffic curating solutions because you're you're both an owner of a marketplace but also you're consulting with people how they launch their marketplaces
0: yeah we had a slightly different uh goal with our solutions hub the, the first goal was to try to kind of package up open source solutions so that people didn't have to go to GitHub or GitLab or wherever and just sort of dive into an ocean of...
1: So basically a curated yep. version of that just for their needs.
0: Right, and, and a way for people to kind of imagine how these components come together to solve a particular problem, whether that problem is an electronic notebook or the problem is how to track productivity of teams. I mean, go all the way up and down the scale. Um, so that was one very key approach for us. The other one is we saw a number of our large customers try the marketplace idea. So whatever we were doing yesterday, we're now going to put in the marketplace and make it pay by the drop or pay by the view or, you know, personal licenses versus enterprise licenses. We didn't see a whole lot of traction there. And what we thought we could do is actually try some experimental ideas, how to position solutions, both vertically and horizontally, and share that as essentially case studies, things that we can do on spec as in speculative ideas, to show to customers. So that was the second purpose of Solutions Hub. And then the third one is really a little bit of us trying to create a sticky experience for our own communities of engineers So, because in the end, engineers are people and they want to see their work up in line.
1: Mostly they are. Yeah. (laughs) There's some bots in there too.
0: And it was kind of our attempt to market sort of leaderboards, right? To say, this is the result of all these open source, thousands of open source contributions across the EPAM community have now been codified into a digital asset management system that's open source or a headless commerce experience that's open source or an API that doesn't exist to some, you know, radical element of concur. So for us, it, it's really almost kind of equally as important as an internal marketing concept as an external marketing concept.
1: Yeah, let me, let me poke at this, this leaderboard idea because I think this ties back to the idea of value exchange, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at the social networking world, um, a lot of the reinforcement loops are the likes and the shares and the, the feedback on, hey, people like my posts, so I'll make more posts like this. Um, Is this one way that people who are either, um, you know, hosting a marketplace or participating in a marketplace sort of ensure that they get value? Because this is maybe a good sort of capper to this discussion, right? This notion of value. Can you convert that essence of value into a leaderboard? And what does that look like?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're huge believers in this. It's one of the reasons actually going back to the open source question. We created this index. You know, you might wonder why the heck did you guys create an open source contributor index? selfishly we wanted to understand our own contribution and and sort of the trend line on it and then we actually think it matters people want to be recognized for the work that they're doing both for its impact in the community but also for its impact in the community of other people like you so yeah we're hugely into this idea of gamification in fact idem's got something called a heroes portal internally that we use and actually are starting to sell to clients which is tracking people's Efforts, contributions. And yeah, I think it's a, a massive element of value. I mean, in and it of itself, from my point of view represents kind of the next generation digital service or digital product, because what, what do you have as a digital badge other than just a code of honor? But in the end, you know, especially in software engineering communities, that code of honor or badge of honor is really important. It defines not just what you do, but for many people, it defines who you are
1: yeah and also helps you sort of open the next opportunity, right i mean this this credentialing, especially in and I know we'll talk about this in the future right the gig economy yep. so much of of the tech uh community is driven by that sort of essence of you know let let me talk about the things that I've done, but let me talk about the things that the community has valued that has value that that's currency
0: we're actually we'll talk more about it and we can maybe edit this out, but you know we're. We're in this space now. We, we bought a crowdsource test, testing company um, not too long ago, and we're experimenting, I think, in some really exciting directions in this idea of a talent marketplace. Um, and we did some early analysis of how to evaluate contributors in that marketplace. And looked at what other people are doing and there's examples of sort of crowdsourcing ideas everywhere, right? Starting from Uber to, you know, some coding marketplaces yep. and whatnot and upward. And we, we tooled around with this idea of creating a score, an AI enabled score for people so that we could actually track whether they're good or bad fits for the community. Um, and looked at out in the world kind of what are people looking at as metrics for yes or no, you know, good or bad. Um, want to take a guess on what the top, top sort of attribute that people really, really go by. Like you can, you can take it to the bank every time out of all the sort of personality credentials and attributes people have. Trust. Yeah. It's close. It's reliability, right? So we looked at something like two dozen different attributes from code quality to, you know, check-ins to... um,
1: Did you show up to the meetings?
0: Yeah. Can you, can you be counted on as a member of a team to do what you said you were going to do? So, so this reliability score in the end ended up being one of the two things that were most critical for yes or no. We want you in or out. Do you want to guess what the second one was?
1: I have no idea.
0: Collaboration.
1: Collaboration. Your Get ability, along with others.
0: Your, yeah, your ability to work in teams because a lot of the work, at least that we do, is so complex, I mean, so heavy lifting, um, that we're not looking for superstar individual contributors because it's a rare thing that you can lift up an entire business on your own. We're looking for people who are able to, wanting to, and really adapt and collaborating with other people. All right. Well, um, Alan, I want to thank you for having this conversation. No, that was great.
1: Was really Thanks fun. for having me.
0: I hope we do it again. And I think um, for any of our listeners who are interested in finding out more, we're going to share some some resources. Um, certainly, I know you has got a few and your research is incredibly exciting. I hope people really check it out.
1: Appreciate that. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you.